This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Before we get into the show, I want to invite you to get my top five productivity tips for absolutely free. And I will tell you, I over deliver. There's more than five tips here, but just head on over to top5productivitytips.com. That's the number five top5productivitytips.com. Michael Reddington is an executive resource, a certified forensic interviewer. I'm going to ask him what that is in a minute. And the author of The Disciplined Listening Method. This is going to be interesting. How well are you listening? He teaches executives how to activate truth, truth with strategic, ethical observation and persuasion techniques He's got the same barbers I do. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on. So I got to ask you, from one chrome domer to another, ah. do you do you shave your head every day? Because I have to. I'm like the human chia pet. I have to shave my head every day. Do you? Not every day. So I had the privilege of starting to go bald when I was 17 years old. Oh, wow. So, so I'm a little bit, I'm natural on the top. Like there's just nothing here anymore. I probably wouldn't even have to touch it. Uh, so I shave my head two to three times a week just to keep it clean. Uh, but so uh, yeah, I've got a little help from mother nature on that one. So I don't have to do it every day. Nice. Very good. Well, I had a guest on my show, oh, about six, seven months ago, and he had this, these gorgeous long dreadlocks. And I said, now I know where my hair goes every morning when I shave it. It goes to your head. <laughs> he, he appreciated the helping there. Okay. So. What in the world is a certified forensic interviewer? I know when we hear the word forensic, we think crime scenes, you know, you, you to bring in the, the CSI guys, but what is a certified forensic interviewer? So I'll do it two ways. A certified forensic interviewer, essentially, and to do it more illustratively, is an interviewer that we like to think could be blindfolded and dropped out the back of a truck and wherever they land, conduct a morally, legally and ethically successful interview, regardless of the context. And in order to get there, earning the CFI designation for an interviewer would be like earning a CPA designation for an accountant. So it's not necessarily a job within itself. It's an earned designation of expertise by meeting a certain set of criteria, passing a rigorous exam, and maintaining the necessary re-education credits after that. So when you say forensic, how, like I'm interviewing you, interviewing you right now. Sure. What is a forensic interview? How does that differ from if you go on a podcast or if you're interviewing for a job, for example? Honestly, from my standpoint, it doesn't differ a whole lot. I mean, if we want to think about certified forensic interviewing in that context, yes, that is designed for professionals who are more likely, more often than not, charged with gathering information typically from reluctant people, which should lead to evidence, if not become evidence itself, with some sort of proceeding that follows the investigation. Maybe it's a legal proceeding within the courts. Maybe it is a, a proceeding within their organization that might lead to some sort of discipline or termination, restitution, but it doesn't have to go through the courts depending on the situation. So yes, there is that if you want to use the scientific correlation or even the scientific method when it comes to, I'm losing my words here for a second, when it comes to gathering information, I don't know why that was so difficult for me to say all of a sudden. <laughs> so yes, there is that correlation there. But to get to the point that you made, for me, 
having a conversation that involves segments of inquiry, the same principles apply. So if I'm interviewing somebody because it is reasonable to believe that they have participated in or have knowledge of an event or series of events that probably shouldn't have taken place, I want to be respectful. I want to be nice. I want to be empathetic. I want them to give a chance, give them a chance to feel like they're not embarrassed, they're not judged, and that to the best of my understand, best of my ability, I'm demonstrating understanding and allowing them to share their feelings. If I can do that, the likelihood of me getting the truth at the end of this conversation increases substantially. And if you think about it, I'm willing to bet that's the approach or very similar to the approach that you take in all of your podcast interviews. So really, regardless of the conversation, if we were to flip this for a minute and I was interviewing you on my imaginary podcast, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, they have information and I need it. They're in control of this conversation, not me. Regardless of my title, regardless of my certification, it doesn't matter because they're going to choose what information is okay for them to share and under what circumstances it's okay for them to share it. So with that, it doesn't matter if I'm conducting a candidate interview, if I am conducting an investigative interview, if I'm in a business development conversation or negotiation, if I'm coaching someone to change, train, change excuse me, their behavior, if I'm having a conversation with my wife or my son the same principles on how we treat people and how we should strategically approach our conversations and the best way to help people save face and then pose those valuable questions. It applies across the board. Interesting. Uh, thank you for explaining that. Now, I want to talk about your book. Now, the book is called The Disciplined Listening Method. We'll tell people how to get that at the end of the show. But there's a couple things I like about this title. Number one, the word disciplined. I believe that if you want to be truly successful in this world, you've got to be disciplined, getting things done, not being addicted to social media, whatever. But then you you add another word on there, listening. I think a lot of problems are stemming from we're not listening. We are not, instead of listening, we're waiting for how we can reply. And I tell people, and I I, I fall victim to this all the time. I, I don't do this well at all. When someone is talking and they may have an opposing point of view, number one, I should let them finish. Number two, I should pause before I reply. So my brain goes, okay, they said this. Did we hear it correctly? And I think if we do that, if we just pause, but I think people are not listening. One of the things that I believe, and I, I can't prove this analytically, but one of the ways, one of the reasons why my podcast took off is when I began to be an active listener. I actually hear what the guest is saying before I became an active listener, which doesn't just apply to the podcast, by the way, applies to life overall. I was just saying, okay, I want to say what I want to say. I want to ask what I want to ask so I can get the next question. But when I started going, hmm, what is Michael really saying here and diving deeper the whole podcast changed and my conversations in real life changed as well. I'm sure. And I'm thrilled to hear you say it. And it's, it's not you. It's everybody. <laughs> like the oldest, not you. It's me joke. It's not you. It's everybody. So literally, when you, when we think about our inability or difficulty that we have listening or finding the value that's hidden, that's lurking in every conversation and in every interaction, I honestly believe that there's two, there's many, many reasons for it. There's two that have been with us for a long time and one historically speaking, that's quite recent. 
But one, to get to your point, is our brains are not wired for us to be good listeners. Our brains are literally wired for us to seek out information that confirms what we already think and believe and discard information that contradicts what we already think or believe because that information makes us uncomfortable. And if there is, if there are two things that our brain seeks out more than anything else, it's consistency and comfort. So let's just get rid of anything that contradicts that because that doesn't feel good to me. So to your point, we have to consciously and intentionally override that. And the other piece is a phrase that you used and should still be used. The ubiquitous term for great listening since the early 50s is active listening. And active listening is good. We should continue to exhibit those active listening behaviors. Some of the downfalls to active listening, active listening really equates to attentive listening. Mm -hmm. So if we're having a conversation and I'm maintaining reasonable eye contact and I'm smiling and nodding and I have open posture and I'm occasionally paraphrasing and repeating what you're saying, you feel like I'm listening, which is good. That should cause you to share more information because you feel like I'm paying attention to you. That's all true. But if we start to flip that coin, I I bet many, many, many of your listeners are black belt level active listeners where they can maintain eye contact, smile, nod, paraphrase, open posture, all while summarily ignoring the person (laughs) listening to them and thinking about how they feel, what they want to say next, or if they're completely checked out, something entirely different. So even active listening, as great as it is, the general practice of active listening sets us to fall just a little bit short. If all I'm doing is worried about making sure you believe I'm paying attention. The more recent one, and I'm, I promise you and your listeners that I'm not going down any roads anywhere with this, but just in general, I truly believe that as a society, listening is increasingly disincentivized. That more and more and more we're incentivized to find a tribe, find a light group, find a label that we can attach to our self-image, stick with that. And anything that contradicts that, we are encouraged to vehemently deny, protest, argue, whatever it is. And I'm not putting any labels. We're not going anywhere this with this. But we're literally, and you mentioned social media, we're literally rewarded for not listening and we're punished for listening and considering outside perspectives at this point. And hopefully everything comes full circle and that comes back around eventually. So, and I'm sure there's other things underneath that. But to your point, we aren't wired to be good listeners. And if we don't intentionally make the effort to say, you know what, there could be something in this conversation that I might learn from. I might be surprised. There might be something of value here, a perspective, a thought, something I hadn't considered. I've got to tune in and see if I can find that. What came to mind when you were talking there is I had a guest on my show and they had a book. What's the name of the book? It's something about re-looking at the way we approach the drug problem in our country. And I always thought, hey, drugs are bad. You're caught with drugs. Go to jail. But the author in the great book made me rethink. I'm like, wow, because I opened my mind. I think that's a really good point of being a communicator is open your mind. I'm like, wow, I can see their point. I didn't do the typical knee-jerk reaction. I said, huh. Wow, that makes a lot of sense to the point I'm telling other people, you know, I really evaluated, reevaluated, I should say, my approach on how do we take care of the drug problem? Now, we got a long way to go in this country, but I think we have to get people thinking differently. I love Apple's logo for a slogan for a long time. Think differently. We need to think differently. If you want to grow, you have to think differently. 
Love it. And for me, I would go just a slightly different direction with that. Not out of any critique, just personal preference. One of the things that I like to say, and I'm sure there are a billion other people that do, is not only think differently, but think for yourself. Yes. Go out and seek that information. Seek those experiences or ideas that make you uncomfortable and at least consider them and consider where their place that they're coming from. What's somebody's perspective? What's their motivation? What's their angle? Because there's a, I mean, for a, the, the universality of the human experience is incredible. Yet we can continue to find ways to nitpick, pinpoint why we're different, why we're perceived to be better or morally superior. And then that makes us feel good. And that is the road we end up going down. But if we choose to think for ourselves, now we literally are forced to seek out new information and opportunities. Some of that we're going to initially disagree with. And maybe at the end, we still do. But in my interview and interrogation career, one of the real advantages I honestly believe my former teammates and I benefited from more than we realized was that we were tasked with having conversations with people who wanted nothing to do with talking to us. (laughs) And there's a reasonable likelihood, definitely not in all, but in a, a proportion of those or a percentage of those conversations, those people did something that we don't understand, we don't approve of. Mm -hmm. So now we literally, it's like going to the movies. We have to suspend reality. We have to suspend judgment. We have to suspend our moral code for the moment and understand that these conversations aren't about punishing people. They're literally about helping them save face, feel respected, and encouraging them to have a conversation in a way where they commit to sharing this information so that to speak too broadly, justice can be served. Like this conversation is just one piece of a greater series of events that's taking place. And so that process literally taught us to think, observe and approach these conversations differently. And it's a way it's, it's, it's an experience that most people don't have because we do carry our perception, our values, our morals into all of our conversations. And we should, there's no critique there. Just the downfall becomes when those blinders become so tight, we miss the opportunity to learn, to develop, to establish unexpected bonds and to move relationships or objectives forward because we're just nailed down so tight with some of those preconceived notions. Yeah. And, you know, we are still in a period of time in our life. I don't want to say the the P or the C word because I may get flagged on (laughs) Spotify, Um, but I want to talk about Zoom calls where a lot of people are on Zoom calls. And we were actually talking about this before we hit record. And I always remind my guests, as you know, I said, look at that stupid light at the top of your, your computer. Because what happens is our not our eyes naturally want to drift to the person we're talking to. But this is going to be on YouTube. And if I'm looking at you, they're going to like, what's Mark looking at? it's going to look like I'm not engaged. And so I've read a lot of articles on LinkedIn and other social media sites that say when you're on a zoom call, whether it's an interview or you're just having a conversation with someone, try as hard as it is to look at that dot, because what that person does, and this is the technology's not there yet. I think they should put a little thumbnail next to the camera. So it's more natural because you're about three inches, maybe two inches below the camera, but that shows engagement. So, when you, you got to remember when we're in a social media world, if you're not looking at the camera, people don't think you're engaged. Now, there is a problem with work Zoom calls that they want the camera on, 
And because they think, like you alluded to earlier, oh, if the camera's on and they're looking in the camera and they're not in their heads, they're engaged. But you can't get into someone's mind. You don't know if they're really paying attention to what the person's saying. You're right. Uh, and, and jokingly, that takes me back to the beauty of conference calls back in the day. Oh, conference, I remember those on the phone. Conference calls were literally created so I could get other stuff done. Like I could just <laughs> dial in, put it on mute and go do other things. Like I miss those days for as much as I used to disdain conference calls. Now, oh, how much do I miss them? Uh, a little <laughs> trick that I'll try to do on Zoom, especially if I'm teaching a program, is I'll take the boxes where the like all the little pictures are of the people and I'll actually put it right up across the top underneath the camera. So that way, while I'm talking, I can at least have the boxes in my peripheral vision. So I'm looking to the top. So a lot of times, you know, and I know there's other platforms besides zoom, but zoom, I believe is still among the most popular. So if I've got that box going down for me, it would be the right hand side. If I'm looking back and forth, yeah, that's going to look weird. But if I can turn it horizontal and put it right up underneath the camera across the top, it makes it a little bit more natural. So that's a trick that, that I'll try to do. But you are right. Um, so from, I guess there's two angles to approach that from. Number one, if we're really engaged in a high value, important conversation via any type of video service, eliminate distractions. So literally shut the phone off. For me, nobody can tell, but I am standing in front of a window right now on the backside of my computer. I shut the blinds. <laughs> so I have ADD, a squirrel jumps from one tree to the next. I'm going to be that guy that goes squirrel. <laughs> People don't need that. So shut the blinds, office phone ringer goes off. My cell phone is put away. So that way the distractions are gone. There's nothing around me to potentially take me away more than my absurd mind. So, so that helps me focus a little bit more. Now, from an observation standpoint, one of the things that we really coach is understand that especially when people are working from home, there are going to be distractions that they can't control. It's not their fault if their dog forces the way in the room. I have a four-year-old son. It's not their fault if their young son or daughter barges in the room and says, Mommy, Disney Plus just froze. Like, I mean, the kids don't know any better. My son has made cameos on any number of presentations and calls I've had over the last three years. And then there was that guy, the infamous guy, what, a couple years ago, he was doing this interview for the BBC, and his, his, his little kid came in on the, I guess, a little walker. And then the other kid came in and the mom come flying in. I mean, that was hysterical. And yeah. he's just like, he's just like being so serious. I'm like, I thought it was awesome. I yeah. thought that was, a. that's why that video went viral. Do you feel overwhelmed and frustrated? Are you under a lot of stress? There's a better way. You only get one life. So why not feel peace and freedom and enjoy your life? You can Find out more at 90 days to busting overwhelm.com. And thankfully, when you know we think of the words that we shall not repeat, this period of time, some of the benefits from that is we've become more accepting of those things. Yes. Where there was a point in time, he is so unprofessional. Really? Like that was intentional. Like he set that up to happen. <laughs> like, thankfully, like, we can be a minute or two late for a meeting. Son mm-hmm. or daughter or dog can poke in. Wife can open the door and say, Oh, I'm sorry. I can walk by my wife's computer when we're both walking working at home and she'll laugh and say yeah mike say hi and i can wave and and keep walking like so these things are more acceptable now thankfully but for us as the observers it's important to remember that these things are going to happen and so 
if we see it happen, number one, don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with us. I guarantee you they didn't say, well, this call is with Mike and I don't care about him. So you can interrupt anytime you want. The odds of that happening are probably pretty (laughs) slim. So don't take it personally. Don't get upset. But understand that there are checkpoints in the conversation. So if I've been talking for three or five minutes, I can stop and I can ask a question. Mm -hmm. But if I may illustrate, there's a pretty important evolution for how we do that. Absolutely. So so if you and I, if if I'm going off, as I probably just did for the last five minutes, (laughs) and I want to stop to not just check that you've been paying attention, but actually ask for your input. It's an important part of the collaboration process. If I say, Mark, let me stop there for a second. Do you have any questions? That's how we've all been taught to do it. The problem is, if I say, do you have any questions? The implied expected answer is no. Because if I am the quote unquote expert or leader or superior ranking person on the call, and I go through an explanation of something, well, you shouldn't have any questions because I'm smart. I'm superior. I obviously must be a genius in how I explain this. So when I say, do you have any questions? The fault, if you will, of having a question is now on you, not me. So the implied expected answer is no, you shouldn't because I'm great. And then on your end, if I do have a question, I might be admitting that I'm not smart, that I'm not paying attention, that I was distracted, that I can't keep up. So there's embarrassment associated potentially with somebody saying, yeah, hang on. Actually, I do have a question. I missed that. I'm not tracking. It doesn't make sense to me. So instead, there's two ways that we like to handle that. The first one is, you know, blah, 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 yada, yada. Let's pause there for a second, Mark. Before I go any further, I got to stop and think that a lot of times things I, I say make a lot of sense up here but they might not make a lot of sense out there. So how many questions have I created so far? I love that. That's an awesome question. Not do you have any questions? How many questions did I create or cause? So that's that's a brilliant, you are brilliant. You are a genius. That's a great question to ask. Thank you. And there's several mechanisms to that. Number one, because I'm being self-effacing first, sometimes it makes a lot of sense up here, not out here. Mm -hmm. I'm illustrating that this is on me, not on you. And I'm also taking down the seriousness of the conversation a notch or two. So hopefully I'm just erasing any potential embarrassment. Then when I say how many questions have I created, the onus is on me. It's now my fault, not yours. In the implied expect the the implied expectation is you should have multiple questions because I asked how many. So I'm not just limiting it to one or making it vague. So I'm literally saying, statistically speaking, there's a reasonable chance I screwed that up. So how bad and what do you need me to clarify? <laughs> but now I'm asking it in a way that helps them save face. The other technique that I'll use in that situation, I use the first one more for one-on-one conversations. The next I use more for group presentations. If I'm speaking to more than one person, honestly, they can go either way. That just tends to be how I default. But the second one would be, say I was giving any type of presentation. It could be a sales presentation. It could be new updates at the office, a new direction we're taking, implementing new software. It could be anything. But at some point during my narration, I'm going to pause and I'm going to use a similar intro. You know, I've been looking at this for a long time and thinking it through. So this is all common sense to me at this point, just because of how long we've been looking at it. But generally at this point in the conversation, the first two questions I get are one, two. How does that line up with what all of you are thinking right now? 
So again, I put it on me and then I illustrate that I always get or often get questions here. This is what they are. So now not only is the implied expected answer, you should have questions, but illustratively, you're supposed to have them. <laughs> like it's normal and expected for it to have. Now you'd actually be kind of different if you didn't have a question. And even if they don't have one, they can save face by choosing whichever one of the two I just illustrated and said, that's actually a good question. Let me ask that. And if you know, I that reminds a- me when I speak, I, I love Q and a, I know for most speakers, they're terrified of Q and a, cause you don't know what the question is going to be. But what I will do is I will find one or two people who are extroverted and say, look, at, I love Q and a, would you be one of the first couple people? Because once you get those first couple people up, it's called seating the audience. And I don't give them the questions to ask. I said, just ask me a question. Once you get those, then people go, oh, you know what? I do have another question. So that's just another tip I use when I speak. I love it. I gave a presentation last night. I spoke at a dinner event for an HR group here in the North Carolina area. And like, I get it. It's been a long day. They've had dinner. I'm coming on. It, it, at least there was a social aspect to the evening for them. Literally three minutes into my start, I asked my opening question to the group and there were no answers. So I literally smile and pick up my bottle of water. I'm like, I'll wait. And then (laughs) when one guy answers, I literally pointed at him and said, thank you for breaking the ice. Who's next? And then they started coming. And later on, I paused, asked for questions. A woman to my left took a couple seconds. She asked, I answered her question. Thank you for breaking the ice. What other questions have I created? And often just saying thank you for breaking the ice makes everybody else laugh and somebody else is asking a question. Because very few people want to go first. I'm one of those weird people. I will go first. If I have an opportunity to be in an audience for like uh, Grant Cardone or Gary Vaynerchuk, I really want to ask some questions. Now, those people have no problem getting people to ask some questions. I'm not at that level yet. But if you have an opportunity, if you are an exit for Mr. or Mrs. Listener, be the first one because number one, you're going to get your question answered. Number two, you're going to break the ice. Number three, because you've already gone first, people go, wow, they went first and they're still alive. Nothing bad happened. So I can do, I can do it too. So what you can do is you're going to empower. You're going to give people the courage to ask questions because I believe whether you're on a zoom call or you're in person speaking, there are a lot of questions because, you know, I don't know about you. I can't read the minds of the audience. And so I rely on them asking me questions. So please ask me questions because I am here to serve you, whether it's on a podcast or on the stage, but You've got to make it comfortable for people. One of the things, going back to Zoom cameras real quickly, I know the importance of having people's camera on, but I've been to some training, maybe you have too, Michael, where they say, oh, camera's on, camera's on, camera's on. Michael, your camera's not on. Mark, your camera's not on. That ticks me off, okay, because now you're calling me out. Now, Now I'm like, why am I here? You just insulted me in front of everybody. Maybe I don't want to have my camera on. Maybe I'm not having a good day. Whatever reason. But I don't think you should yell at people to say, turn your cameras on, in my opinion. Bad hair day. Bad hair day. Yeah, exactly. That's for you and I. That's that's the only option it could be. I That joke bombed. I apologize for that. Um, I'm with you 100%. And for me, it's treating adults like adults. Like I can go ahead and say that we would appreciate for everybody to turn their cameras on, but you're an adult. If you don't want to turn your camera on, that's your decision. Like, Why am I going to bully you over that? Um, 
Now, if I am in a situation where I'm participating in an event and like the absolute expectation is everybody needs to have their camera on, I'm going to make it about me and not about them in a positive way. So it, it can't be, this is the do not example. It can't be, you know, I, I've got a lot of important information today and I need to make sure that I have all of your attention. So turn your camera on. That's not going to work. But if it is, hey, I understand that now more than ever, people are busy. They're pulled in a bunch of directions. Maybe we just snuck in a workout. Maybe we're eating right now. Maybe we have our baby on our lap or the dog in the room. And by the way, kids and pets are always welcome in any program I ever yeah. do. I'll literally yeah. say that. I said, for just for the connection for the group and understanding the, the takeaway value we're trying to create for everybody in the interaction that we know would help drive that. Like the commercials say, this is a judgment-free zone, and I personally would be grateful for people to turn their cameras on. Yeah. And usually by making those illustrations up front, kind of making it funny and making it about the value for the group, if there were six cameras that were off, three or four of them will come on. Yeah. And if somebody's dog or child is in that screen, I will literally comment about it immediately. That's a beautiful dog. What's his name? Oh, how old yep. is she? My son's four. I remember having him on my lap. Like, so, And that immediately takes everybody down and shows them that it's okay. And I think that all too often when somebody is leading a meeting or leading a presentation, they get so focused on, I have 45 minutes and all this stuff to cover, that they lose the ability or the... I shouldn't say the ability, but they, they lose the focus or the peripheral vision, if you will, to say, well, wait a minute. If I slow my roll for the first three minutes and get everybody involved, the next 42 are going to go a lot easier. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that this, this person said that really caught me off guard is there's a woman, a Muslim woman, who didn't have her, I don't know what you call it. I've, I've lost the top. What were the, the Muslim uh, yeah. So yeah. she didn't have it on. And so she said, like, you know, I can't be seen by other men without it on. And he goes, oh, that's OK. Or if you're naked. So I'm like, oh, so if you're a Muslim woman, you don't have your 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 head dressing on or if you're naked. But everybody else got their camera on. And I just thought I just that didn't settle well, well with me. Because you're saying these two people, it's okay, but everyone else is. So if I get naked, I can leave my camera off. I mean, I just, I didn't like the way they said it. It didn't come across well, you know? So I think there's a way, like you said, there's a way to say it. But when you're singling people out, basically yelling at me, I'm like, now I really don't want to have my camera on. I want to create one of those loops. I have my camera on and just play it. So I could be doing other things. And you think I'm on camera, but that's just my personal opinion. I would never tell people, have your cameras on. I'd say, I would feel better if you have your cameras on or say it the way you said it. But when you're lecturing somebody, even if you're a leader and you're doing a company-wide meeting on Zoom, I think that's the way you say it. Because just because someone's looking in the camera, I could be thinking about, oh, game four of the NBA finals right now. I could be maintaining the conversation and lose my train of thought. So you can't fake engagement. So if you're a leader or you're a host of a podcast or a video, obviously, if you're doing a video podcast, they need to have the camera on, but we're talking like more a group setting. So before we wrap up and we talk about your book and where people can find out more about you, is there anything else that you want to share with us today? 
I could go on for hours, but I don't think anybody would enjoy that. One quick thought. If you're thinking about game four of the NBA finals, hopefully you're cheering for the Celtics. Just want to get that out there. Oh, no, I'm going. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. The reason why I'm rooting for the the Warriors. I used to hate the Warriors because they used to beat up on the Rockets all the time. I'm in Houston. Okay. But there's something I really like about Steph Curry. Number one, he's a Christian. He is an out proud Christian. And I remember... When they were playing in San Francisco, they were playing the Rockets. The Rockets were up, came three games to two, and the Rockets were leading at halftime. And the Rockets were the one they would have gone on to play the Cleveland Cavaliers, which the Warriors actually won that series. But Steph caught on fire, and he got so lit that he actually said, "Not in my effing house." Well, his mother called him out on social media and said, "That's not the way I raised you," and he actually apologized. Because his his mama called him out. He goes, no, 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 we don't talk that way. And I think he's a good role model because he is like, I'm a Christian first, then I'm a basketball player. And so I'm kind of rooting for him. I did watch game three. I, I, I As a secret, because I go to bed at like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, so I don't watch the games. I watch them the, the day after. And I'm watching this. I'm like, when are they going to get started? I mean, like, Steph Curry and uh, Clay Thompson – it's just they're they're not like the powerhouse they used to be. I really think the series is going to go to seven games. I mean, these teams are so well matched. I mean, obviously the networks and the NBA want to go to seven games to make more money. I think these team, two teams are really well matched. I think the Warriors will win game four and then game five, and it'll go down to game seven, and there's nothing like watching a game seven of any sport. I mean, I that it's the tense, the stress, everything is just there. And I'm not even playing. <laughs> I get all nervous about that. I agree. I, I'm, I'm a born and raised Boston sports fan. So I'm, I can't argue anything you just said about Steph Curry. Of course, I'm just born and raised a Boston kid. So that it, it, <laughs> story ends there for me. But you're 100% right. Nothing. Baseball, hockey, basketball, nothing replaces game seven. Uh, but to get us back on track, because I'm sure your listeners didn't necessarily want to listen to me pontificate about <laughs> they, They're Boston used sports. to it with me, Michael. They <laughs> are used to it with me. Um, I think for me, when we think about engaging with p- other people, especially if it's any type of situation where our emotions are involved and there might be differing fears, motivations, goals, whatever it might be, is disciplined listeners, we really should make an intentional effort to take responsibility for how our counterparts experience our communications. If we can, to the best of our ability, if we can own how we engage with people in the interpretations or reactions that we set out to create, then we should do a really good job limiting the unexpected, unhealthy, or adverse emotional reactions that we didn't mean to create, but yet we do all the time because it's just a facet of communication. So we should limit that. And to get back to some of the things we talked touched on before, one of the things, or I guess several just sort of one-liners, if you will, to wrap it up, time is the enemy of empathy. So to go back to that Zoom call, if I'm if I'm sitting here thinking I only have 45 minutes, then I'm literally prioritizing 45 minutes over connecting with my audience. And I'm more likely to say and do things in a way that shuts them down or stops me from observing something valuable because I'm just focusing on beating that 45 minutes. So time is undefeated. Let it take care of itself. Focus on your audience. And to that end, people will interpret how we communicate with them as proof of how much we respect them. So slowing down, being more observant, following up after the conversation and giving them tangible evidence that we really did listen, not just 
you know, repeating during the conversation, but literally a day, a week later, coming back and following up on something. So now where they have tangible evidence that we did listen and that we do care, as my wife rightfully reminds me all the time, it's the little things that count. And that's not just true at home. That's true in our business relationships. It's true in our Mm -hmm. social relationships as well. So if we literally find a way to elevate our expectations and prioritize the opportunities to unlock value and really move our relationships forward and move our objectives or our projects, if it's a work example forward, now we have the opportunity to really maximize the ripple effects, if you will, of our individual conversations. I love it. Way to wrap up the show. So where can people find out more about you, sir? Thank you for asking. If they're looking to find out more about the educational engagements and advisory services we offer, that's at inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. If they're looking to find out more about me, michaelreddington.com, or they can connect with me on LinkedIn at michaelreddingtoncfi. And if they're interested in the book and all of the research and perspective and experiences that are piled in there, they can learn more at disciplinedlistening.com. And they can also find it for sale online at both Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Awesome. Michael, great conversation. Thank you so much for bringing your Chrome Dome and your energy on the show. It was great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. I know that there is an endless stream of options for you in this day and age, but you took the time to listen to the episode. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Don't forget to head on over to top5productivitytips.com and get my gift to you, my top five productivity tips. Remember, it's the number five in top5productivitytips.com. They will serve you well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you again real soon.